Okay, last week we talked about the uh, pr precedence to the Reformation. We talked about John Wycliffe and John Huff, Jan Hus or Hus, depending on how you say it. Wycliffe died in 1385. He was English, and he was the first one to translate the Latin Vulgate Bible into the vernacular, which means the common language that people spoke. He translated it with the help of some other brothers into English, and then died in 1385. And then last week we stressed that the King of England's queen was from Bohemia. Right after Wycliffe died, the King of England died, and his queen went back to Bohemia. And when she went back, she took Wycliffe's writings with her to Bohemia, which influenced a Catholic priest there named John Hus, or Jan Hus, depending on how you say it. And he uh, began to preach the gospel at a time when the gospel was pretty much obscured and hidden. And there was a great work of God in what is now Czechoslovakia, then Bohemia. And um, eventually, because God was at work and Hus was being used by God, the Catholic Church began to persecute him. And he was eventually burned at the stake in Constance, Switzerland in 1415. But... Huss's followers in Bohemia continued to follow him, and it was really the first expression of Protestantism in Europe. So this is 1415, 100 years before the Reformation, and I told you the story last week about Blind Jan Ziska, the Bohemian general, with his little wagon, they called them wagon forts, he had wagons with horses, and the Catholics invaded Bohemia to put to squash or, or destroy the Protestant religion, and it was that was thriving after Huth's death. And John, uh, blind Jan Ziska, with his little army of 10,000, went out to meet the Catholic armies of 150,000 and defeated them 10 times decisively over a period of 15 years. So Ziska only had one eye, and eventually he lost the other eye. He was completely blind, and he was still crushing the Catholic armies with an army a fraction the size of the Catholic armies. And eventually the Catholics gave up. By the way, I got emails from some of you this last week. Who was this guy again? Here's a Wikipedia entry in, on him if you'd like to read it. You pronounce his, you spell his last name Z-I-Z-K-A, Ziska, Blind Jan Ziska. He's a fascinating guy. The problem is we don't know that much about him. We know what he did, which is remarkable. And we know how he did it to some extent, but we, but we don't know much about him personally, okay? So this week we're going to continue on with our precedent to the Reformation. Next week we're going to look at Martin Luther, the week after that Zwingli, the week after that Calvin, three really important fellows. But this week we're going to look at three things, Gutenberg and the printing press, which we have a picture of behind me. That's a replication, a modern replication of what Gutenberg's printing press looked like. And I'm sorry, it's a little bit distorted this way, but um, <coughs> we don't have any pictures of the original printing press, but this is what it looked like. Gutenberg and the printing press. Secondly, Girolamo Savonarola, who like Wycliffe and Huss, was, a, was a, one of the men who was a president to the Reformation. And then lastly, a man named Erasmus. How many of you have heard of Savonarola? Anybody here? Oh, ha oh, good, quite a few of you have. How many of you have heard of Erasmus? Okay, good. And you're a pretty, you're a pretty uh, literate, well-read crowd, because most people would say, who? So 
Okay, book manufacturer before Gutenberg. Most books before Gutenberg were printed in Latin, and they were not the vernacular. There were almost no books in the common language prior to the printing press. All books were hand-printed and illustrated by monks. So to manufacture a Bible, it took a monk about a year with, with uh, quill and ink, very laboriously printing each page, <coughs> the meticulous, beautiful, lots of, lots of artwork in the, in the columns and the headings, very expensive, very time-consuming, and in Latin, not the language that people spoke. Um, books were therefore very expensive, and the result was massive illiteracy. Why learn to read if you don't have books? And the average person didn't have a book. Books were incredibly expensive. Uh, all books had to be hand duplicated by hand printing, so there were few books. If you had a library of 100 volumes, you were a very wealthy individual because books were very expensive, okay? And the result was massive illiteracy. That brings us to Gutenberg, who, was, who we don't know the exact date of his birth. He was born sometime between 1393 and 1406. So he was, the important point was, he was in his uh, grade school years or junior high years when Jan Hus was burned at the stake in Constance in 1415. The invention of the printing press was the first revolution in information technology, okay? Talk a lot about information technology today. But this was a really big one. This was a, was a world-changing invention. <clears throat> and of course, when Gutenberg invented it, he had no idea of the consequences of his invention, what it was going to do. The first thing that Gutenberg printed of any substantial, he, 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 printed, a few, he printed a few minor things prior to this, <coughs> excuse me, that were not, I need some water. Love, would you give me some? Oh, great, thank you. Um, he printed a few minor articles prior to printing the, the Vulgate Bible. Of course, the Bible was the book in those days, and so people wanted Bibles. And as, as I mentioned, Bibles are very expensive. The average church didn't even have a Bible. And if they had one, as I mentioned last week, it was chained to the pulpit so that nobody could steal it because they were expensive and valuable. So Gutenberg, in 1455, five years after he invented movable type in a print press, he made a mass production of about 200 Vulgate Bibles. <clears throat> it was really a big deal. Uh, the first Vulgate Bibles were very expensive, not as expensive as a handwritten Bible, but they still cost the average, what would be the average three years wages. Okay, so, um, and we have here a picture of one of the surviving uh, original printings. That's one of the original Gutenberg Bibles. About 200 were printed. There's about 40-some still in existence. And they're almost all in, in, like the New York Public Library has one. They're, in very, they're very, very valuable, hundreds of thousands of dollars if you could buy one of these today. But there it is. And you can see it's a real work of art. You can see the, the, the paper that Gutenberg printed on has survived 500 years, which is quite remarkable. And you can see the quality of the printing. You can see the, uh, at the paragraphs they have ornate uh, drawings and pictures and so forth. So this is one of the reasons it was so expensive. 
the printing press had a huge influence on both the Renaissance and the Reformation. So if you can, if you can visualize this, we have two big intellectual movements going on at the same time here. We have the Renaissance, in mostly headquartered in Italy, and we have the Reformation, mostly headquartered in Germany, both occurring at the same time. Now, the Renaissance started before the Reformation and was, and had a large uh, degree in a, uh, of motivating the coming of the Reformation, which we'll see when we talk about Erasmus. But they were, they were parallel intellectual movements. That's what's important to understand. The printing press greatly accelerated literacy. Because if people could now afford to buy books, then, then it was worthwhile to learn to read. And so even though there was still massive illiteracy by modern standards, maybe now 10 to 20% of the people could read, whereas before, 2 or 3% of the people could actually read. It's hard, to hard for us to imagine a world where there's that kind of illiteracy, isn't it? In other words, remember I mentioned last week the average person never traveled more than 20 miles from their home. There were no newspapers. There, were, there was no way to, to get current events unless a traveler passed through town and had news from a local city and would, would share it with you. And of course, it was probably distorted quite a bit because it wasn't researched. So knowledge of the outside world was just fragmentary at best. And add to that the fact that there aren't books and people can't read and you have an illiterate, superstitious people. It's not an environment in which biblical truth flourishes. Case of the printing press. Now, I mentioned a printing press in Gutenberg because he's going to have a tremendous influence on upcoming lectures, the, the fact that we now have books available. And that takes us to Savonarola, Girolamo Savonarola. In 1987, I was on the beach in Bermuda reading Savonarola's biography by a man named Van Passen. It's called A Crown of Fire. And I went to Amazon this week. I've lost my hardbound copy of it, but I found a Kindle copy for $4. And it's a great read. So if you want to read a great book, get Van Passen's A Crown of Fire, the biography of Savonarola, Girolamo Savonarola. It's great. Anyway, I'm on the beach in Bermuda. I've won this trip with the insurance company I work for, and Judy and I are sitting there on the beach, and there's pink sand everywhere and yachts in the harbor and beautiful barco loungers and the waitresses coming by serving uh, Bahama Mamas. You know, I mean, it's a luxury situation. And here I am, I'm reading about this guy and I'm weeping. And my wife said to me, Bill, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> Which was true. This was not, the, not a place to be reading this biography, okay? Because this guy suffered a lot. I'm at the end of his life and I'm reading about his his suffering, and I'm just overwhelmed by this man, okay? Then five years later, Judy and I were actually in Florence, where he lived, Italy, and in the central square in Florence, there's a plaque embedded in the pavement that is uh, still there to this day, and there's a picture of the plaque, although it's only about that big. In the picture, it looks a lot bigger. In Italian, it says this. Here is where, with his brethren, Fra Domenico, and Fra Silvestro, Fra means brother, like they were monks. Fra Silvestro, on May 23, 1498, by an iniquitous sentence, Fra Girolamo Savonarola was hanged and burned. This testimony has been placed after four centuries. Now, every year on the, on the anniversary of Savonarola's burning, hundreds of people come to this little 
plaque in the pavement and they heap up flowers. That's how popular he, his memory is to the Italian people, even to this day, 500 years later. Savonarola was born in 1452 and died in 1498. So he was two years old when the printing press was discovered. He was to the Reformation what John the Baptist was to Jesus. He was a forerunner, God's herald, calling Europe to repentance and faith. And during his lifetime, he was very famous. Everybody in Europe knew about him. He was really well known because he was prophetic. He actually had a prophetic gift. God would appear to him in visions and tell him about things that were to come. And he would announce that, and those things actually happened. And so the people in Europe kind of revered him as a modern-day prophet. I know some people don't think that those kinds of things ever happen, but I'm of the conviction that they do. It's special, and he was a special man. When Savonarola died, Martin Luther was 15. So Luther grew up knowing about Savonarola. Columbus and his Spanish friends were discovering the New World. And the printing press, which we just mentioned, was up and going strong. The papacy and the Roman Catholic Church was a moral and theological mess. 19 years after Savonarola's death, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. Savonarola's, Savonarola's life and work was a clarion call to repentance. It prepared the church for the great doctrinal reformation which was to come in the ensuing years. Tragically, tragically, neither Catholic nor Protestant claims this man today. Why is that? Well, because he fearlessly and vigorously rebuked the Pope. The Pope at the time was Alexander VI. He was a horrible man. He conducted orgies in the papal palace. Um, he had no real Christian belief. He was, a, he was Pope for the money and for the power and for the influence. It was the, it was the low point of the Catholic Church. It was, the, it was the sink pit of the papacy. I mean, it's never gotten that low since or before. Alexander VI, he was a Borgia Pope. And he and Savonarola locked horns. But he fearlessly rebuked that pope because he called for moral reform at the highest levels in the Catholic Church and because many Protestants identify with him, the Roman Church disowns him. So when the Reformation began, the reformers all looked back to Savonarola and claimed him as one of their own. So as a result, Catholics move away from Savonarola. Because he was a Roman Catholic monk, many Protestants distrust him. Like most Protestants, however, he loved and preached the Bible but since he was pre-Reformation, he did not clearly see justification by faith alone. He saw it, but not as clearly as Luther saw it. He didn't see all the implications of it like Luther did. And so Protestant historians don't know what to do with him either. So here he is, he's in this tweener world, you know, between Catholics and Protestants. But the important point is, I believe God claimed him. And in the end, that's all that matters. He was a prophetic individual, God gave him great spiritual power. He was one of history's epochal spiritual leaders. Savonarola was a household name, as I've mentioned, in the 16th century. He wrote a meditation on Psalm 51 while he was being tortured to death by the Alexander VI, the Pope, at the end of his life, and it became a bestseller. It outsold Thomas Kempis's The Imitation of Christ, which was a huge 
a bestseller in Europe at that time, and it was still in print as late as 1958. Now, if you write a book and it's in print 400 years later, that's a success. I can tell you as an author, I doubt my books will be in print 10 years from now, okay? So to be a guy who writes a book like this, this book, this Meditation on Psalm 51, to show his popularity and to show also the, the quality, what he was, his ideas, his spirituality, that book was still in effect a long time later. Savonarola affected many other great men. For example, Michelangelo. When Savonarola first came to Florence, it was the height of the Renaissance. Great artists were applying their trade and were apprenticing there and learning under the Medicis. Michelangelo was 15 years old and he, the monk Savonarola came, he was about in his late 30s, early 40s. And so Michelangelo was assigned to take Savonarola on a, on a tour of Florence and explain all the works of art there in the city at that time. So the young man did that and they became really close friends. Uh, and later on, uh, after Savonarola died, uh, he was a huge influence on Michelangelo in, in his artwork. It was, in fact, it was said that he painted the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel from his recollections of Savonarola's sermons. Savonarola's, the greatest influence in his life was his grandfather, Michel, who was a physician and a polymath. A polymath means somebody who's widely read in many, many academic areas. His grandfather was very bright. He was the physician to the Pope and was, was a, considered one of the world's really great physicians. His grandfather loved the Bible at a time when almost nobody read or loved the Bible except a, a very small people in theological schools, basically. And he had a copy of the Bible. And he raised Savonarola on the Bible. Ultimately, Savonarola's passion for Scripture, which he got from his grandfather, Michel, was to be the secret of his great spiritual power. Longing to preach, he joined the Dominican order. Now, in those days, you had what were called secular priests in the Catholic Church. They were your parish priests. As I mentioned last week, most were illiterate, couldn't read, and so there was almost no preaching. There were two non-secular orders, and many orders are Catholic priests, but the two most, most important were the Dominicans and the Franciscans, who both traveled around from place to place and preached. And most of, them, most of the Dominicans and Franciscans had learned to read. They'd been taught to read as part of their training. And they were preachers. And so Savonarola wanted to be a, uh, a member of the Dominicans because he felt called to preach, primarily because he loved the Bible so much. So he joined the Dominicans, and for seven years, he was an abject failure at preaching. There's one story where he was preaching in a church in Italy, and at the beginning of his sermon, there were a couple hundred people there. By the time he got done, there were about 15 left. Everybody had left, okay? It was that bad. And uh, so in 1490, at the age of 37, this is about 17 years, he's been a Dominican now for about 17 years, the Dominicans transferred him to St. Mark's Monastery in Florence. San Marco is what it's called in Italian. It's still there today. And although the city was a source of great learning and art at this point in time, the Medicis ruled Florence, and this was the time of Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci and Botticelli and all these Raphael and all these great artists. And they were all attracted to Florence because of... Uh, the Medici's money, which 
gave them training and, and a living. It was a source of, it was a place of great learning and art, but it was also a cesspool of sexual immorality, political corruption, and godlessness. There was great poverty in Florence right alongside tremendous opulence and wealth. Uh, prostitutes plied the streets, uh, lots of homosexuality. It just, it was a bacchanalia, basically. The wealth and power of the ruling Medici family attracted, as I mentioned, all these artists, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, Raphael, Caravaggio, Botticelli. And in this great city, they learned and practiced their craft. So you got this, you know, you have a collision coming between, uh, not that the artistic world was bad in itself, it wasn't, but the, but the values that went with it that were being promoted by the Renaissance. And then you have this biblical character, Savonarola, okay? By this time, Savonarola had died to his preaching ambitions. He had come to the end of himself. In the meantime, God was at work using his failure to transfer all of his confidence from himself to God. So here's this process going on. Savonarola wants to be this great preacher. He's trying really hard. He's failing, and he's come to the end of himself. And now he's ready to be used by God, which is so often the case. He began to lecture in the monastery garden at San Marco on the book of Revelation. And something happened. Things changed. God's presence came down, okay? This was the difference. Before, it was just Savonarola trying to, pre to, to work his magic. He's given up on himself, and now God's presence has come to attend his preaching. And the difference is electric. Um, within a few weeks, the only seating left was on the garden walls. And such was the demand for his preaching that his superiors finally moved him to the Duomo. The Duomo was the big cathedral. And here's, I forgot to show you this. Here's a picture, a painting of Savonarola's face. He's not a great-looking guy, is he? And he's kind of austere-looking in this, in this painting. This is done by uh, Fra Domenico, I think, is a really famous Renaissance painter who was a monk in the same monastery with Savonarola. They were really close friends and he did this painting of Savonarola from the side. Uh, we have another painting of him here from the front. Get a little bit better picture of him. Sorry, it's not real, the painting isn't real clear. And here's a picture of the Duomo from the front. This is how it looks today. This is this huge cathedral, which will seat, excuse me, won't seat, but 10,000 people can stand inside of it. Here's another view of it from the top, from the distant. It's, a, it's a, in fact, that cathedral dome that you see there was designed by Brunelleschi, I think. Is that the right name, Judy? Do you remember? He was before Savonarola's time. This was how it looked during, it looked the same when Savonarola was there as it does today. And Michelangelo, who took Savonarola on a tour of this church when he first arrived, that had no idea that Michelangelo, after Savonarola died, would design the dome of St. Peter's Church in Rome, which would be even a greater work of engineering than this dome here at the Duomo. Okay, 15th century churches did not have pews. People stood in church or sat on the floor. And why was that? Because there was no preaching. So you would go to mass in a 15th or 14th century church, and it would last 15 or 20 minutes is all it was because they would just, it was, they would go through the elevation of the host, say the Lord's Prayer, go, just go through the whole mass in Latin. Nobody could understand that anyway. People would, would stand in the church. They'd take the Lord's Supper and 
Sometimes <coughs> they'd drink the wine and they would go. There was no need for seating. But when the Reformation came and preaching was, came back again, then they started to put pews in churches. So in the Duomo, there's no seating. They're just standing. And Savonarola began to preach there. And again, God's presence so attended his preaching that pretty soon the cathedral's full, 10,000 people standing. And they have to build bleachers in the back, risers, to, 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 because the demand for his preaching is so great. People are streaming in from all the surrounding cities and villages to hear this man preach, and he's preaching a pretty austere message of repentance and faith. Like John the Baptist, his favorite biblical hero, in fact, his grandfather Michelle wrote a book on John the Baptist, it was a message of repentance and self-denial. Now, people don't stream like this to hear messages on repentance and self-denial, do they? Especially in this moral environment that I've described for you in Florence. So why are they coming like this? are coming like this because God is present. And if you've ever been in a sermon or a preaching situation where God is present this way, it's the presence of God mediating himself through God's word that attracts people in droves. And when revival comes, this is what happens. God comes down, his tangible presence is felt in the church and you can't keep the people away. Day and night people come and that's what is happening in Florence. Savonarola preached justification by faith alone, which was not in vogue at the time. The Catholic Church had not clearly defined uh, justification by works, what Catholics would later call infused righteousness, which means we earn our way to heaven. Okay, at this point in time, that was not clearly defined, but that's what was taught in most Catholic churches. Savonarola's reading the Bible uh, infused righteousness was defined in about 1540, so jump forward 50, 60 years now, at the Council of Trent as a reaction to the Reformation. But although the Catholic Church did not have a clearly defined doctrine of infused righteousness, that's what Catholics were teaching everywhere. And so here's Savonarola, who's reading the Bible, who recognizes that we're saved by faith as a gift from God, as a gift of grace. So that's what Savonarola is preaching. And here's uh, just a sentence from one of his sermons. He's going to use the word predestination as a synonym for salvation. He says, It is untrue that God's grace is obtained by pre existing works of merit, as though works and deserts were the cause of our predestination. On the contrary, these works are the result of predestination. So he's on to the Reformation idea that we are saved as a gift of God because we believe and repent, and then from that, works follow, okay? The Catholic Church and all the people in the medieval world believe that I work my way, I work, and then I'm saved. I go to heaven because I'm a good person. And the problem is, though, how, much, how good is good enough? And so nobody knew how good was good enough. So the Catholic Church also taught that no one could ever have any assurance of their salvation. You could never know. That's what Muslims believe today. You, because they also worked their way into heaven. You can never know that you're good enough, so you never know if you're really going to go to heaven or hell. So you've got to strive, 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 work, work, work. Have I ever done enough? See? And of course, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is very clear that 
God's standards of perfection. We can never match up to those standards. So if we're going to be saved, it's going to be a gift given to us by God that we've not worked for, that we receive freely by faith because God is good. Well, that's what Savonarola is preaching. He fearlessly proclaimed the need for contrition, warning men of God's coming judgment. He urged the citizens of Florence to confirm their repentance with deeds consistent with repentance. He was a prophet who often predicted the future, which I mentioned earlier. Nothing but the presence of the living God can explain the results. One biographer writes, quote, the cathedral could no longer take in the multitudes streaming in from far and near. Wooden galleries had to be erected inside the cathedral in the form of an amphitheater to accommodate the crowd. So think the theater, if you've been inside the Duomo, it's this huge building with a cement floor. And today there's pews in there, but in seven rolls time there was not. And so to get more people in, they're gonna build balconies at the back so they can, they can get more people in. Even this enlargement proved insufficient. It was a bewildering sight <coughs> to see that mass of people coming with jubilee and rejoicing to the sermon as to a wedding feast. This is rejoicing about repentance. A message of God's coming judgment and the need to repent. The experience of Batuccio was not unusual. He was a profligate. He was a non-Christian. Friends drug him into the cathedral against his will. And here is how an eyewitness describes his encounter with Girolamo Savonarola. As soon as Savonarola mounted the pulpit, everything changed in Batuccio. He could not tear his eyes away from the preacher. His mind was captivated. His conscience was touched by the friar's words. And he says, quote, at last I knew myself to be as one dead rather than living, end of quote. Batuccio gave his life to Christ, and he never looked back. Florence was experiencing revival. It is one of the first recorded revivals since the days of the early church and the days of the apostles. So there probably were some other revivals in, in the Roman church at various times, but we just don't know about them. But this one was written down and recorded. Sometimes the people were so overwhelmed by the reality of their sins that Girolamo had to wait for their weeping to subside before it could continue. It's a common experience during times of revival. In the Korean revival in 1907, the same thing. A group of a thousand Korean pastors gather in Seoul to, uh, at this point in time, there's a very small percent of Koreans are Christians. They're all missionaries and God comes down and the people are, are, are weeping because they're seeing their sins in their life as God sees them. And then grace comes. Uh, same during the Great Awakening in the 1740s. And the Second Great Awakening in the early 1800s, early 19th century. So this experience of our sinfulness, God brings to us so that we can appreciate his love, his grace, and his mercy. And when people experience this, they're, they're, never, they're forever changed. They're never the same after this. And no longer are they working for God to earn his favor, they're working God as a response to his grace, as a desire to please him, as a, as a, because they want to be like him. Not, they're not earning their way into heaven, but they're responding freely to God's grace. <clears throat> At least 10 times the monk who was responsible to take down uh, Savonarola's sermons was so overcome by God's power and presence 
that he broke down in weeping and it could not continue his transcription. We know that because we have the transcriptions. There'd be these big blank spots where he doesn't write anything, then he, then he comes back again. Jacob Burkhardt, a 15th century historian, was the first person to, excuse me, a 19th century historian, I'm sorry, was the first person to coin the term Renaissance to describe this movement in this time. About Savonarola, he writes this, and Burkhardt was no friend of Christianity, okay, but he writes this. Quote, the instrument by which Savonarola transformed and ruled the city of Florence was his eloquence. Of this, the meager reports that are left to us, taken down on the spot, give us evidently a very imperfect notion. It was not that he possessed any striking outward advantages. You saw the picture of him, okay? For voice, accent, and rhetorical skill constituted precisely his weakest side. Accent, he had, he had an accent that the people from Florence didn't like. And he had all these things, in other words, going against him. The eloquence of Savonarola was that of a commanding personality. He himself held his own eloquence to be the result of divine illumination. Oh, that was the, that's what it was. Burkhardt doesn't understand that. He's saying, well, this happened because Savonarola was such a great preacher, speaker. But Burkhardt, but Savonarola says, no, I cannot ascribe this to my oratorical abilities this is a result of illumination. God has come and made himself known. So what was, the, what was the effect of the monks preaching? Florence was skeptical. The city was licentious. It was proud, but it became a city of belief, a city of repentance, and a city of humility. Florence was transformed. They began to feed the poor. The populace returned to church enthusiastically. They purged the government of corruption and sang hymns in the streets. It is one of the remarkable events of church history. Botticelli, one of my wife's favorite fine artists, who did the Venus, the birth of Venus and some other wonderful, was a young man and he was converted under Savonarola's preaching. He'd already, he'd already done these paintings that were, uh, his models were ancient Greek philosophy. And many of the paintings, the, the, picture, the females in the paintings were nude. So Botticelli, after he's converted, sneaks back in at night and paints clothing over the, over the, over the women in his paintings. So, of course, the, his, those are the historians of fine art are just horrified by this whole thing. They're horrified by Savonarola. They're horrified by his effect on the Renaissance at this point in time. Through the preaching of Savonarola, God showed that the negative aspects of the Renaissance were impotent before the Holy Spirit's power. So we see there was much good in the Renaissance. The uh, slogan of the Renaissance was ad fontes, which is Latin, which means back to the sources. And so that part of the Renaissance was really good. They wanted to go back to the original sources in uh, Greek and Roman literature and in Greek and Roman art and and recover the original sources. And of course, that affected Christianity because the Christians who were involved in the Renaissance said, ah, back to the sources. We need to go back to the original Greek and Hebrew texts of the Bible, which have been pretty much, were totally ignored at this point in time. The Bible was in Latin, and Latin wasn't always a good translation. And so that, as you're gonna see next week, had a huge effect on Martin Luther. Okay. Savonarola was a prophet in his teens, he foresaw that he would die a violent death in Christ's service. As we mentioned earlier, Alexander VI was the pope, 
It was a low point of the papacy. He was a member of the Borgia family. They were known for their immorality and typical of a member of the Borgias. He had numerous mistresses and illegitimate children. He was opulent, he was sensual, he was greedy. He did not in any way represent Christ or the Christian religion. He, in fact, he was in an incestuous relationship with his beautiful daughter, Lucretia. You've heard of Lucretia Borgia? That was his daughter. And so it was, I mean, it was bad, okay? We think it's bad today. There have been worse times. As Savonarola's moral and spiritual influence grew, not only in Florence, but throughout Italy and Europe, a confrontation with the Borgia papacy and its corruption became inevitable. With great courage, Savonarola publicly challenged Alexander to repent of his immorality. He even called him the representative of Satan rather than the representative of Christ. Finally, the little friar had gone too far. Alexander leveraged the immense power of the papacy, put the courageous monk through a mock trial, tortured him for 30 days, and finally hung him before a vast throng in the main square of Florence. Now, there's a painting of this. It's not especially a good painting, but you can see on the right kind of a cross figure, and you can see a guy hanging in white on the right. Remember, it was Savarola and two monks that sided with him. They, all three of them were hung together. So here's the... There's a platform raised in the, in the square in Florence, uh, and on the left you see a, a white figure with two black guys on either side, and that's Savonarola, the third one, who's getting ready to be hung. So the, all three of them were hung, and then they were, their bodies were burned in the square. They tortured Savonarola horribly. They, I've had a, I have a painting of this too, but I didn't bring it. It was too graphic. But they would tie his hands behind his back, then they put a rope in his hands and they would raise him to the ceiling like this with his hands and then drop him. And right before he hit the floor, they'd, they'd snap the rope tight, jerk his shoulders out of his shoulder sockets. They did that over and over and over to him for 30 days. Yeah, bad. So people can be pretty nasty, can't they? But the amazing part of this was he endured all of this because God's, I mean, I'm not saying there wasn't pain, because God's grace and power was with him. They were asking him to repent and confess, and he said, no, I'm not gonna repent and confess. Finally, after 30 days of this, he hit the wall, and God basically withdrew his presence from Savonarola, and he lost it, and he said, I'll sign. And he got the pen and the ink, and got ready to sign, and God's presence came back over him, the power of God came to him, and he said, no, I can't do this. I'll go through more torture if I have to. And the next day they hung him and burned him, okay? It's a great story, read the book. It's, this is the book I'm weeping over on the beach. <laughs> I'm reading this and on this beach in Bermuda. My wife says, Bill, you're embarrassing me. Savonarola suffered all this with great courage and dignity. The religious establishment had successfully extinguished a burning and shining light in the heart of both Florence and Italy. Now, what can we learn from this? We can learn real quickly that <clears throat> who is it that persecutes the real thing? It's always the church, isn't it? It's religious people. People in the church that take pride in their virtues, that hate the gospel because the gospel humbles us and says our virtues have no value with God. We, if we're going to be saved, we're only saved 
as, uh, by receiving salvation as a gift. We can never earn it because God's ways are so far above us and we are so sinful, it's impossible for us to earn that. And therefore we are in a process of humbling ourselves, humbling ourselves, humbling ourselves. Well, religion doesn't like that. Religion is proud, religion does not want to humble itself. Religion wants to feel good about itself. It wants to feel good about its virtues. And so it's always religion that persecutes when revival comes. And that's what happened with Savonarola, although this is the worst example of religion we can think about with the papacy. Okay, let's pivot just for five minutes. Lastly, to, to a man named Erasmus. I asked you earlier if you knew who he was. He was born between Savonarola and Luther. He was 14 years younger than Savonarola, but 17 years older than Luther. Luther was born 1483. Franciscans said that Erasmus is Luther's father. He laid the eggs which Luther hatched. Erasmus laid the eggs which Luther hatched. He was Europe's greatest scholar. He loved books and reading. Everybody considered Erasmus the smartest person in Europe in the 16th century. April of 1500, he wrote to his friend Jacob Batt, quote, the first thing I will do when the money arrives is buy some Greek authors. And if any is left, I will buy some food and clothing. See, that was Erasmus. This is a famous quote. You know, every time you go to the theological seminary, this is the first quote you get because they want you to love books the way Erasmus loved books. Erasmus has a high school in Brooklyn named after him, a university in Holland named after him, Seven, several honorary awards and scholarship programs named after him. Erasmus was, was the bestseller in history, first bestseller in history. His book, In Praise of Folly, there's a, there's a painting of him, I think done by Holbein, <coughs> appeared in 600 editions, and his book, The Colloquy, is in over 300. By 1530, listen to this, 1530, 13 years after the Reformation began, 20% of all books published were written by Erasmus. So in 1500, remember the printing presses discovered in 1450, or invented in 1450. 1500, there's 1,000 printing presses in Europe. By 1517, these printing presses are churning stuff out. 20% of all books published were by Erasmus. He wanted the common man to be able to read the Bible, but devotionally, not doctrinally. He wanted people to know Scripture not for doctrinal clarity and accuracy, but for moral and spiritual improvement. And this is very important. He is the one, not Benjamin Franklin, that said, God helps those that help themselves. And Erasmus picked that up, excuse me, Franklin picked that up from Erasmus and repeated it in the 18th century. But Erasmus was the first one that said, God helps those that help themselves. We're just about out of time, so I'm going to have to skip through some of my notes here. What's important about Erasmus? Well, the important thing about Erasmus, I mentioned the Renaissance, and I mentioned the slogan, ad fontes, and I said the idea was to go back to the sources. Erasmus was a Greek scholar. At a time when the Greek, the original Greek language coined Greek, which is what the New Testament was published in, was written in, was almost lost. And Erasmus became the world's foremost scholar in New Testament Greek. And Erasmus published in 1516, the year before the Reformation began, God used him to publish a Greek New Testament. Here is a picture of the title page. Not much to look at. It's in Latin. 
But in the Greek New Testament, Erasmus had on one page, he had the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, which had all kinds of errors in it. It had been published in the fourth century. It was, uh, what's 1,100 years old. There'd been no, uh, no other um, uh, translations of the Bible to compete with it for 1,100 years. And now Erasmus in the New Testament has the, has the Latin on one page and the Greek New Testament on the other page. So anybody that could read Latin and Greek could see the errors in the Latin Vulgate on the left-hand side. And that's why Erasmus published it, because the Latin Vulgate was full of errors. So for, it, for example, the Latin Vulgate, where the word repentance was used, would use the word, um, not repentance, but the word uh, do penance. So I was raised Catholic, we'd go to confession as Catholics, and at the end of confessing our sins, the priest would say, now for your penance, you need to say three Our Fathers and two Hail Marys and give $10 to the church or something, okay? That was penance. Wherever the New Testament had the word repent, the Vulgate had the word do penance, which is a completely different meaning. Because repentance is the word metanoia in Greek. It just means I'm going to change directions. I'm going this way. Nope, I'm going to change directions and go this way. Do penance has to do with works. I have to work. I have to do all these things, okay? That's just one little example. So with the Greek New Testament, Luther, as soon as it came out, Luther went right down to the bookshop and bought a copy of Erasmus' Greek New Testament because he knew Greek and he wanted a Greek New Testament and this was the first one published. And as soon as Luther's reading this, the year before the Reformation begins, he is empowered with truth that he didn't have before. So he was greatly used by God. He was a coin Greek specialist, and the most important thing he did was this translation of the Greek New Testament, which Luther immediately read. Now I mentioned, we'll talk about this more next week when we look at Luther, but I mentioned the Erasmus, and I'll close here. Read the Bible devotionally, but Luther read the Bible doctrinally. When I was converted, I was Roman Catholic, and I've stayed Roman Catholic for two or three years because I didn't know any better. Okay. But I immediately began to read the Bible. And I read it doctrinally because I just assumed that's what we were supposed to do. In other words, I read it looking for truth. I read it assuming that just because the Catholic Church said this was true, it wasn't necessarily true. Most of my Catholic friends read it devotionally. They read the Bible and they would read it to worship God, but they weren't assuming that the Catholic Church was probably wrong in certain areas. They weren't going to read it doctrinally. And that's the difference between Erasmus and Luther. Luther read it doctrinally, Erasmus read it devotionally, and that brought them into great conflict. You have to come back next week to find out about that conflict. It's a very, very important conflict. So we're going to end here. In a sense, Erasmus was the first liberal because he didn't want doctrine to be important because he thought doctrine divides. We don't want to divide the church. In other words, he, he, made, he made unity an idol. And so he was opposed to Luther, and I'm not going to tell you anything more on a wreck next week. Let's close with prayer. By the way, before I pray, if you'd like the copy of my notes from this week, uh, email me, bfarley48, 48 is my year of birth, bfarley48 at Gmail, and I'll send you a copy. If you have any other questions, be sure to email me. Come talk to me afterwards if you have any further questions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for these men. Thank you for Savonarola. Thank you for the printing press. We don't even know if Gutenberg was a Christian, but we thank you for the work you did through him.
And we thank you for Erasmus as well, Lord. We ask you, Lord, to send revival to us as you sent it to Florence in the 16th century. We ask you, Lord, for a visitation from your Holy Spirit. We so desperately need this. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.